But I am honored to be here and to open the Gospel of John with you specifically looking at John through the lens of the Old Testament. If you look at the next slide, it's a book that I highly recommend if you want to go deeper into this specific question. The book is, it's a commentary, verse by verse, but it is specifically looking at it through the methodology of understanding the, the Gospel of John through the Old Testament. Not just the prophecies, but the allusions. There are 22 explicit, I'm sorry, 14 explicit prophecies, quotations, and about 80 allusions to the Old Testament in the Gospel of John. And we're going to have to go relatively fast to be able to cover all that we need to in this specific study. The chart that's in front of you on the screen shows you the John reference and then the Old Testament reference. And you can kind of see the text so you can understand what is John quoting and why is he quoting this. And if you were to read all of those verses, you would notice that all of them are messianic. Every single direct quotation in the Gospel of John is a messianic quotation focusing on the identity of Jesus Christ as Messiah. The quotations mostly come from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the reason that John did that is because he's writing to Hellenistic Jews, people who are more comfortable in Greek than in Hebrew. And so most of the time you can trace all that back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In addition to these quotations, John focuses on specific heroes of the Old Testament, like Abraham and Jacob and Moses, the bronze servant, serpent, Passover, the booth uh, are mentioned, the tabernacles, the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Sabbath is mentioned, the Day of Preparation. All of these are intended to provoke you as a reader of the Bible and for the original audience who were Hellenistic Jews, which means that they were Jews with influence of the Greco-Roman Empire that lived in that environment. They were supposed to take their Bible, open it, and see the connection to the Old Testament. And John does this from the very beginning. From the very first words in John 1.1, he wants to take our attention back into the Old Testament. Here's what you have to understand about the writings in antiquity. The prologue in any ancient work was critical to the understanding of that book. It set the purpose and the parameters of any book written in the ancient world. So think about Matthew. The prologue in Matthew is the first few chapters. And the first verse says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, he wants to make sure that you immediately start thinking about this story through the covenants connected to David and to Abraham. And then he gives us 10 quotes from the Old Testament to make sure that you as a reader of Matthew do not derail your focus away from the Old Testament Davidic and Abrahamic covenants. In Mark 1.1, Mark writes that he takes his story back to the Messiah quote in verse 2 and verse 3. Isaiah 40 is quoted there. But he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereas John says, this is the beginning of the word. The word was with God and the word was God. John goes farther in time than does Mark. Intentionally trying to pull us as far as possible, as one scholar says, into the primordial time. To the very beginning. Luke in his prologue, prologue, talks about researching and carefully talking to the eyewitnesses and looking at the previous works that were written about the story of Jesus, referring to Matthew and Mark. 
when he did his work. That's specifically Luke. So in other words, we have to understand that the opening verses, the prologue, which is the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, are intended to set the focus, the parameter and the purpose for our study of this book. And he wants to make sure that from the very beginning, he takes us back to the story of the Bible. There are other works written in that time period. It's called the Second Temple Period because the Second Temple was built in 516 BC. It was still standing at the time of Jesus. And so that's called the Second Temple Period. Other works were written in that time period that also would take the reader back to the creation motif, to the creation story. So this isn't unique necessarily, but what John does do is unique in that he wants to make sure that we understand that for John, the Logos is the Word. It's the Word of God who was with God and was God. He's distinct from God in that sense. He's not equal to the Father, as we'll learn later in the book, but he is with God as close as possibly to be with God. He's there with him. So John enters this writing as if to say, I'm going to retell the story through the lens with which you're already familiar. It's the creation motif. You know about the creation of the world, the physical creation. I'm going to introduce you to a different story, the spiritual creation story. And that's why he takes us all the way back to Genesis 1.1. Now, in doing so, as I just mentioned, he is aligning himself with this Jewish notion that there was a connection between creation and God acting. Proverbs 8, for example, this gives us a biblical account where you have wisdom functioning in the creation motif. And we're not going to read all of it, but just look at a few phrases that I want to pull out. In verse 22, he says, Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his way before his deeds of old. So now wisdom comes in and says, I was there when the world was created in the very beginning. Verse 24, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. Now we're talking about wisdom being created. So be careful making wisdom equal to Jesus because Jesus isn't created. Wisdom is. In verse 25, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Again, I was created as if it didn't exist. And it didn't exist before the creation. Verse 27 says, when he established the heavens, I was there. So yes, the wisdom of God was present with God. God was using his wisdom to create, but it's still a created entity. And of course, the very end of that passage says, wisdom was rejoicing in the world, his earth, my delight is in the sons of man. So what the book of Proverbs is trying to do is to say, wisdom was present at creation. So how do we reconcile this idea? Because a lot of people these days who do who study the Gospel of John, say John is introducing the Logos, he's introducing Jesus as if it's, he is the Old Testament concept of wisdom. And now it's wisdom incarnate. As if wisdom is the pre-incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate member of this, the second member of the Trinity. Well, I hope that those two references to wisdom being created pushes you away from that conclusion because Jesus wasn't created. So I think the best way to reconcile this, I was talking to Abner about this last week, is to say God possesses all wisdom. And wisdom signals union with God and utility. 
from God. So it's a part of God because God is the source of all wisdom. Colossians 2.3 says that. Jesus is the treasure of all wisdom and knowledge. So yes, God has wisdom, and then God uses wisdom in his creation. But who's the agent of creation? You know this? Jesus, exactly. I know you know this. Jesus. He's the agent of creation. So in other words, we're talking about Jesus using wisdom, the wisdom of God, divine wisdom, to create everything that we see in John 1, 1 through 5, or in Genesis 1 and 2. Well, as much as Jesus parted physically, parted darkness and light, you see that in Genesis 1, what John is trying to communicate to us is that now the same member of the Trinity enters once again to part spiritual darkness and bring spiritual light. And that's the connection back to Genesis 1. And we'll come back to it a little bit later in the message. So from the very first words, John is trying to take our attention back to the Old Testament. Now, thinking about this whole topic of the Old Testament in John, you could approach it in multiple ways. One way would be to just kind of go through systematically and look at every chapter, every verse, and see, okay, what is the connection to the Old Testament? We don't have time for that, and you can do that through that book if you'd like to really do that. What I'd like to do is what I recommended to do last time I was here, and that is to read this gospel through the lens of the purpose statement. We talked about the importance of the purpose statement to any book. Well, the purpose statement that you see in front of you is very clear on what this book is trying to accomplish. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, Messiah, same terminology, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So let me show you that even in the purpose statement, John is trying to take us back thematically, into the Old Testament. Christ, that's an Old Testament idea. It goes back to Psalm 2, verse 2, where it says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his Messiah, his anointed one. That's where he gets that idea, Psalm 2, 2. Where does he get the idea of Son of God in the middle of the verse? Well, that's Psalm 2, 7. The Lord, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So now sonship language comes into the picture, again, from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where God says, you are my son. And if God is God, then we are talking about the son of God. Hence the title, son of God. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Well, if you believe in him, you will have life. Where does this idea of life comes from? It comes from Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. This is God inviting people to come and buy and eat for free, be satisfied, and ultimately the result is life. And you will believe in his name. That comes from Isaiah 54 verse 5. Whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He's called the God of the earth. In Isaiah 43 11, God says, I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. So in Isaiah 54 and 43, specifically, there's many more passages, but those two are extremely clear that God's name is associated with him as Savior. So John 20, 31 takes all those concepts, whether it's from Psalm 2 or from Isaiah, collects them and connects them in order for us to be able to understand that this Christ, this person, Jesus, right? That's the first mention. You may believe in Jesus, that he's the one that Psalm 2 talks about. 
that he's the one that Isaiah 55 and 43 talks about. In John chapter 5, Jesus makes it even more clear. He's speaking to the Jewish leaders, and he says to them, verse 39, you search the scriptures hoping, well, let me read the actual verse. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. In verse 40, he says, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Even this idea thematically comes from Isaiah 55. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live because of Yahweh your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has adorned you with beautiful glory. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. This is one of the greatest gospel messages and invitations in the Old Testament. But do you see this thematic overlap? Come, you will have life. You will experience beautiful glory. That's what Jesus is offering to the Jewish leaders in 539 through 44. But you refuse to come to me because you'd rather receive glory from one another than from God. So John is trying to connect us as readers of this gospel back to the Old Testament, even in the purpose statement. So make sure we understand that. So because of that, what I'd like to do is give you 10 categories where John introduces us to these Christological themes and links them all back to the Old Testament and shows us the fulfillment of those 10 categories of Christology because that's the whole point of this book. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. Now, as if you remember anything that I said last time, I said John is all about Christological discipleship. In other words, Jesus is the paradigm. We follow him. So all this ultimately has to make its way out in our lives. We have to obey and follow But the introduction to all of this is Jesus as the Christ. So here are the 10 categories. The first one is in the connection to the Old Testament, we see the divine identity of Jesus. We see the divine identity of Jesus. From the very beginning, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Two truths are featured immediately in this gospel, that he is with God and that he is God. He's distinguished from God, but he shares the identity of God. Richard Bauckham, writing about this, says this, before creation, there is no room for any beings other than the one God. So if John will claim that this logos is in the beginning, even by that, there's a conclusion that we have to draw. He is deity. He has the qualities of God. Now, it becomes very clear in chapter 5. You can just follow along on the screen. I've tried to put most of these passages on the PowerPoint so that you can follow along. 5.21, we read the following. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. 
For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. So now in this passage, what John is doing is to present Jesus as the one who has full sovereignty, just like the God of the Old Testament. And God the Father is the one who gave them this authority. So the bullet points should say, that's right, he gives life to whomever he wishes, just like God does. He possesses all judgment. He receives worship and honor. He has life in himself. What we have to understand is that in the Jewish theology of that era, only one being can be worshipped. Who is that being? You know this, I promise. (laughs) Yahweh, God. God is the only exalted being who can be worshipped. That's consistent in all of the writings of that era. It doesn't matter if you find them in the Dead Sea Scrolls or if you find them in the New Testament or outside both of those groups. Only God can be worshipped. And no angel is allowed to be worshipped in Jewish theology. And then Jesus shows up. And he never declines worship. In John chapter 9, when he heals the blind man, the blind man worships him. And we know that. Jesus doesn't turn him away. Now, Jesus showing up says, towards the end of the prologue, if you look at 114, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We know this verse, we saw his glory. So now glory is also attached to God only. And now it's connected to Jesus. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So no one has ever seen God at any time is what We see in verse 18, the only begotten God is is in the bosom of the Father. He explained him. So you have this principle that nobody has ever seen God. In Exodus 33, verse 20, that's where this idea comes from. No man can see me and live, God says to Moses. And then at the end of Exodus, chapter 40, verse 34, it says that God, the glory of God, takes up residence in the tabernacle. And now in verse 14, Jesus, the pre-incarnate, second member of the Trinity, all of a sudden takes up residence in a tent. That's the word dwelt. It just means literally to take up residence in a tent. He moved into a tent from heaven down to a physical body. So as John introduces us, he says, I'm talking to you about the God that no one has ever seen. No one can see and live. But Jesus is the one who shows up and claims to be that God. And so in John 14, 9, Jesus will say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 12, 45, he'll say, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. And so while book after book in the Old Testament or other Jewish writings, the truism is the same. No one can see God. Then Jesus shows up and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's why verse 18 says, you haven't seen the Father. No one has. But this one, the only begotten one, he has explained him he has allowed us to see him to understand him to know him that's why paul picks up this idea in colossians 2 9 2 9 and says all fullness of deity dwells in him or in second corinthians 4 6 he says the glory of god is made visible in the face of christ this is same allusions back to this idea of not being able to see god versus being able to see god but The greatest way John explains the deity of Jesus. 
is through the I am statements. We know about them. There's seven of them. The question is, where do they come from? Because they are unique to John. The other gospels don't have these statements. So where do they come from? Well, Exodus 3, 14 through 15, the meeting between God and Moses in the wilderness, God tells Moses, I am who I am. And so that's probably the best connection to John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. That's probably the best connection for that verse. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, I am he, there's no God beside me. I put to death and I give life. I wound and I heal. There's no one who can deliver out of my hand. So you have that as a potential verse as well because the I am appears in Deuteronomy 32, 39. But the best link is Isaiah 40 to 55. Take a look at all of the passages and I'm just gonna let you read them. I'll go fast, is that okay? All right, try to keep up with my Russian accent. I'm the God, I'm the first and the last, I am he. I'm happy to give this PowerPoint to anybody who wants them so you don't have to take pictures. 43.10 says, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. Even from eternity, I am he and there is none who can deliver me out of my hand. I act who can reverse it. I am, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up, and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I am the Lord, have created it. I am the Lord, there is none else. I am, I am the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Even to your old age, I am. And even to your graying years, I am, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you. I will bear you and I will rescue you. How precious is that verse? It's a promise from Yahweh and Jesus picks up this idea and applies it to every believer. Remember the former things lost, uh, long past. I am God. There is none other. There is no one like me. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am the first and I am the last. Jesus says that in Revelation. I'm the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. I am, I am he who comforts you. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who's speaking. Here I am. For I am the Lord. Love justice. Those are every single reference to the I am in Isaiah 40 through 55. And if you read it in one sitting, you realize the overwhelming power of the I am. And then Jesus takes that and adopts it and says, this is who I am. You've read this before. You've heard this read in the synagogue week after week after week. And now I am here present with you. This is why Richard Bauckham again says, in Isaiah, this phrase is divine self-declaration, encapsulating Yahweh's claim to unique and exclusive divinity. He also says, among the most emphatic, this saying is among the most emphatically monotheistic assertions of the Hebrew Bible. And if Jesus in God, John's gospel repeats them, he is unambiguously identifying himself with the one and only Yahweh, the God of Israel. But here's his best saying, the quote in front of you. Bauckham says, through this saying, this is Jesus' way to express his unique and exclusive participation in God's unique and exclusive deity. Just as I am in the Hebrew Bible sums up what it is to be truly God, so in John, it identifies Jesus as the truly God in the fullest sense. 
People argue about John 1.1. Is that proving that Jesus is God? You go and start talking to JWs about that, right? A better way to start is the I am statements. There's no doubt when you have scholars of the New Testament saying this is the best demonstration of the deity of Jesus Christ. So Jesus shows up and says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection, the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. In those seven sayings. So it's the first presentation of Jesus regarding his Christology as rooted in the Old Testament. It introduces us to his deity. Jesus is deity. He's God. But he's here to fulfill a purpose. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Which takes us to our second category. That is, Jesus is the revelation of God's name. I already mentioned this from 118. He has explained him. He has made him known to us. In chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is that work? Well, in John 17, in verse 4, he says, I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I have made your name known to the men whom you have given me. That's Jesus' simple definition of the work that he came to do, to make your name known. In other words, he is the revelation of God. And in John 5, 17, he says, my father is working until now. I am also working. This is him claiming that I am participating with God in his work. And on top of that, in chapter 14, verse 10, Jesus says, the father abides in me and does the work. So now Jesus is not divorcing himself from God the Father in the work itself. The goal is to make God known. But he's also saying God is working in me to accomplish this work. So now there's a union between the first and the second member of the Trinity to make sure that the work gets done. Until we get to the climax statement in John 19.30, on the cross, Jesus says what? Do you remember this? It is finished. The work is finished. That's the whole point of that statement. I've made it known, and that takes us back to Genesis 2, and I'm going to show you the connection to that a little bit later. So to make God known so that people would realize that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That confession only appears in one place. Kind of odd where it appears in John 4.42. What's John 4 all at? What's the story of John 4? Okay, women's ministry, you got to know this story. Come on. The woman, exactly. The Samaritan woman gets a whole chapter. Mark, Mark, Matthew, and Luke decide to ignore it completely. You remember this. I think I said this last time that when John was following Jesus, he actually wanted to burn down the Samaritans at one point. And now he devotes a whole chapter to that story. And they, the villagers of Sikar, confess this truly is the Savior of the world. Yes, salvation idea appears in the Gospel of John elsewhere. The world is a big motif. But the phrase, the Savior of the world, only appears in John 4.42. Because in Samaria, there was a temple devoted to Caesar Augustus. And if you were to approach this temple, at the top of the door it said, Augustus, the Savior of the world. And Jesus is in Samaria. 
He's talking to the Samaritans. And he wants them to understand, Caesar is not the savior of the world. I am. And how wonderful that at the end of that story, Jesus never talked to them, right? Well, he did ultimately. She's the first introduction to Jesus, about Jesus to the villagers. Then they listen to her. She's the first evangelist to the Samaritans, you could say that. Philip takes over later. And they confess, Jesus is the savior of the world. How will that salvation be accomplished? Because he is the lamb of God. That's our third category. Jesus is the lamb of God. That is introduced in chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him and says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 36 repeats the same idea. Behold the lamb of God. That phrase to his disciples would have immediately taken them back to Exodus chapter 12. The lamb, the little sheep that was slaughtered at Passover every single year from Exodus 12 on. And Jesus, his death was accomplished on Passover. And so Jesus now shows up and John the Baptist, his cousin, recognizes him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53 comes into the conversation. He who, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. John is picking up that imagery from Exodus 12, Isaiah 53, to make sure we understand that the way this work is going to be accomplished to make God's name known is through Jesus' sacrifice. So the first characteristic that John introduces us to about God, about Jesus, is that he is in the Godhead. The second is that he is the substitute that has been foreshadowed for thousands of years And now he's finally here. The climax is in 1928 when he is slaughtered on Passover. But to accomplish this, he had to be expected. And that takes us to our fourth category. He's the prophet. He's the prophet who is to come. Again, introduced in the very beginning. Verse 21 of John 1. John 1 The Jewish leaders, Levites, priests come to John the Baptist and ask him, you're preaching, you're baptizing, your ministry is exploding. You can see that in the Synoptic Gospels. Everybody's coming out to him. He's becoming extremely popular as a preacher. They ask him, verse 21, are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you the prophet? No. Then who are you? Why why do you have the right to do what you do? And he quotes Isaiah 40, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. So now this idea of the prophet is introduced by the Jewish leaders to John the Baptist. In other words, they were expecting a prophet to come. And he's going to be different than any other individual. As the story develops in the Gospel of John, everybody is wondering if he is the prophet. The Samaritan woman in 419, before she confesses anything about Jesus, says, I perceive you are a prophet. 444, Jesus says, a prophet isn't honored in his own hometown. 614, remember the story in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000? At the end of that, the crowd begins to wonder, is he the prophet? 740, 
the crowd affirms he is the prophet. 752, the Jewish leaders are doubting, is a prophet going to arise from Nazareth? Is that the possible place where this prophet is going to come from? 917, the blind man affirms he is the prophet. He stands up to the Jewish leaders who are mocking him and ridiculing him, going after his family, his parents, and he ultimately says to them, he is the prophet. And that's the last statement about Jesus' prophet. So understand this. The public ministry of Jesus is the only place in John where the prophet question arises. Because the point is, you're supposed to ask the question, who is this man? Is he the prophet? Where did this idea come from? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you. From your brothers, you shall listen to him. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their brothers like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded you. This is where this idea comes from. And so for all these centuries, the Jewish people were trying to figure out when is this prophet going to come. First Peter 1, 10 through 12 says that. The prophets of old, the ones who wrote scripture, were wondering the same question. Where is he going to come? And Jesus says, ultimately, if you believed that prophecy about the prophet, then you would believe me. Because in John 5... As he dialogues with the Jewish leaders, in verse 45, he says, well, right before that, we read that passage already, you refuse to come to me to have life. You, believe, you refuse to believe in me because you only care about glory from one another. In other words, you just care about approval from men, not approval from God. Verse 45, don't think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to truly know who I am, and if you want to understand what I'm all about, you should be reading Moses. And if you believed his writings, you would believe what I'm saying. The implication is you won't even believe the Torah. They didn't believe that there would be such an individual. Now, they claim to have believed, but Jesus' analysis of their heart is that they are in hard-hearted unbelief. Jesus in the gospel of John fulfills Deuteronomy chapter 18. And of course, the other allusion to Moses is that he is the one who gave manna in the wilderness. That's John 6, the bread of life dialogue. That's the whole point of that passage. And Jesus says, my father gave you food. And really, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. So now we see Jesus being presented as this future prophet who is unique and he's the fulfillment of that passage and takes us to our fifth category is that jesus is the one who is the anointed he's the anointed one i already mentioned this from the purpose statement he is the christ that's the language the messiah the same word messiah actually means sent one the anointed one in the greek christos Mishia would be in the hebrew and so now he is presented as the anointed one in the purpose statement, but also back in chapter 1, verse 41. The very first time the disciples say anything affirmative about Jesus, it's in verse 41. And look at the first declaration. We have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ, verse 41 says. 
because they've been waiting for him and hoping that he would show up, and now he is here. Now flip over to chapter 10. This is where it gets really controversial. Because now in chapter 10, we know chapter 10 because the good shepherd narrative. But what happens after the good shepherd narrative is a hostile situation where at the very end, it says in verse 39, they wanted to arrest him. Verse 24, the Jews said to Jesus, they surrounded him. Which is, you know, just, you have to imagine this. Jesus is surrounded, that's what it says, by the Jewish leaders. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the anointed one, tell us plainly. Just tell us already, are you the Messiah? And how does Jesus respond? Verse 25, I told you, you don't believe me. Okay, fine, you don't believe my words. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify about me. And of course, the sovereignty of God is introduced in the next few verses. You're not my sheep, therefore you can't hear my voice. Then Jesus says, I am protecting the eternal life of those individuals who are mine. My hand has been protected by God's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. We have the same purpose. We're going to protect the eternal life of those individuals who are the sheep of the fold. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. That's the hostility that's building because Jesus actually is declaring to be the anointed one. And he says, this is the work that I came to do. Verse 34, and then he says, isn't it written in your own law? That's Psalm 82 verse 6. I say you are gods. So if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, himself, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, there's the Messiah language, there's the sending language, you are blaspheming. Remember, the prophets were also sent. There's a lot going on in that one verse. It's a prophetic illusion. It's a messianic illusion with the sending language. You're blaspheming because I'm saying I'm the Son of God? If, you don't do, if I don't do the works of God, don't believe me. But if I do them... Though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand or continue knowing that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they respond by wanting to arrest him. Jesus is going back to Psalm 82 verse 6. And he's going to make an argument from the lesser to the greater. Psalm 82 is all about the governors being judged by God. They're called the Elohim, which is a plural word for God, El. Just understand that Elohim in the Old Testament isn't always in reference to God. It refers to kings, to governors, to false gods, and to the true God. It's what's called a term, a plural of majesty. It's a way to elevate somebody's status by giving that individual that title. And the plural ending, im, in Hebrew, is a plural of majesty. You pluralize somebody you respect. Really odd in English. We would never do that. Lawrence. We really like our Lawrence. Doesn't sound right. Although we do like our Lawrence. That's the Old Testament approach. And so Jesus says, okay, so if the governors who are being judged by God in Psalm 82, because they're corrupt, abusing the poor, that's the context of Psalm 82, and they're called gods, and then I show up, And I'm performing miracles, I'm raising the dead, I'm teaching the word of God, 
and I am the son of God, and you have a problem with that? That's the argument from the lesser to the greater. I'm the one who's sanctified and sent, Jesus says. That's how you interpret this passage. I know that's a debated text, but that's the best way to understand this passage. But it all goes back to what happened in verse 24. Tell us if you are the Christ, the anointed one. And Jesus confesses, I am. 16 times the anointed one or the Christ appears in the gospel of John. Messiah appears twice in 141 and then in 425. So in other words, this gospel is filled with references to Jesus as the Christ. But it's also filled with references to Jesus as the Son of God. That's our sixth category. Nine times, Jesus is called the Son of God. I already mentioned this, that it goes back to Psalm 2, verse 7. God designates him as Son. It also goes back to 2 Samuel 7, 2 Chronicles 17. Those are the Davidic covenants being introduced to us for the very first time. Where God promises to David a throne. That's permanent. The Davidic lineage is being established as the messianic lineage. And so the Davidic covenant is connected to Jesus in that regard because he is the son who will one day come. So the son of God idea is introduced not only in the purpose statement. We already saw that in 2031. Not only in in chapter, uh, in Psalm 2 verse 7, but look where else it's been introduced. Go back to chapter 1 once again. Verse 49, we know this Nathaniel guy, he's a little bit of a pessimist. He's skeptical that anything good can come out of Nazareth. And so he's invited by Philip to come and see in verse 46. And then when he sees Jesus in verse 49, the first words out of his mouth, well, second words, verse 48 are his first words. How do you know me? He says, how do you know me? You are the son of God. The first confession Taking us back to Psalm 2, divinity language. But it's also paired with the Son of Man in verse 51. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you thought that was impressive, that I knew you before I met you? Verse 51, I'll tell you, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is our seventh category. Christological fulfillment from the Old Testament in the seventh category, that is the Son of Man language, appearing 11 times in this gospel. It is the most frequent self-designation by Jesus in all the gospels, appearing over 80 times. If you want to say, how did Jesus think about himself? As the Son of Man. Here's why. Ezekiel, if you remember Ezekiel, what is he called repeatedly? Son of man, over and over and over by God. Listen, son of man, write this down. Go do that. Go do that. So Jesus picks up Ezekiel's version of son of man, which is about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is the one who would say the son of man has no place to lay down his head. Remember that? Even foxes have holes in the ground, he says. So there's the divinity of Jesus. Son of man language in all the Gospels appears as presenting a human Jesus. But the son of man language in the Old Testament also is about deity. So in this one title, we have a confluence of humanity and deity. Because in Daniel chapter 7, 
verse 13, Tom Patton read this for us Sunday morning. Daniel says, I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this is the Son of Man language that presents this future figure as one who has all power, all dominion, and his kingdom never ends. But what happened right before that? Verse 9, the Ancient of Days took his seat. Thrones with fire around. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing. Thousands of thousands were attending to him. Myriads and myriads were standing before him, and the books were open. This is judgment day. Jesus picks this up in John chapter 5. And toward the end of that chapter, well, not all the way to the end, in verse 25, he says, some in the future will hear the voice of the Son of God and will live. Then verse 27, he gave the Son to execute judgment. He has all authority because he is the son of man. Verse 22 said already, the father judges no one. All judgment is handed over to the son. Who's the son? Verse 27, the son of man is executing judgment. So now Jesus is picking up both titles and saying the son of man is human. But the son of man in chapter 5 is the one who executes judgment, just like in Daniel 7. Again, speaking of his deity, mixed with his divinity. You have to understand that there are many other writings around this time that were fascinated with the Son of Man idea. And they saw this figure, the Son of Man, as the future judge, the apocalyptic figure that will come in the future. And so Jesus and John introduce us to this concept specifically as Jesus being the Son of Man. But if you go back to chapter 1, the way that story with Nathanael ends is that Jesus says, don't be so impressed with my omniscience. Be more impressed with the fact that the heavens will be opened and the angels of God will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is an allusion back to Genesis 28, where heaven was opened. Jacob's ladder is the vision in that chapter, which signifies the presence of God. So now Jesus is saying, you should be more impressed with the fact that I'm here to open heaven. Do you see what happened in chapter 1? Genesis 1-1 takes us to heaven. To see the Logos with God. God, the very God, the creator of the universe. The ending of chapter 1, he's now back to earth and he's opened heaven for us. That's how this chapter wraps itself at the end. You go from heaven to earth, and now you can look and you can see that there's an entrance to heaven from this earth. But before we get there, to heaven, this Jesus shepherds us. That's our eighth category. He's the shepherd. He's the one who says in John, I will not leave you as orphans. In John 10, he is the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. 
He picks up this language from Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34. I'm not going to steal all this from Pastor John because he's going to preach this next Wednesday morning. You should live stream it. He's preached it to me many times on the phone already in the last couple of months. He can't wait to preach again. You know, two months of not preaching, I feel like he's in turmoil. He's in the purgatory right now. It's horrible. He's coming in a couple hours. I'm sure we're going to get a preview. You should definitely tune in next Wednesday at 10. But those two chapters, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, are all about the failed shepherds, the false shepherds. And you know those chapters, they steal, they abuse, they feed themselves. That's why Jesus says, I'm not like them. I'm the good shepherd. On top of that, the pharaohs, the emperors, called themselves shepherds of our people. And then they slaughtered them. Jesus says, that's not what a true shepherd does. I'm the good shepherd. Because in Matthew 9, 36, we have an insight into the compassion of Christ. Seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. That's the heart of Jesus as the one who is the true shepherd. As Peter says in 1 Peter 5, the chief shepherd. He will appear one day. Zechariah says, I will strike down the shepherd. Right? You have this imagery in the Old Testament of shepherds, true and false shepherds. But Jesus, in order to become the good shepherd, he has to become the suffering servant. And that's a ninth category, the suffering servant. In chapter 2, Jesus says, the zeal for my, your house consumed me. And then he immediately, four verses later, talks about his body being given up. Destroy this temple, speaking of his own body. So he understands that ultimately he's going to sacrifice himself. In chapter 13, he says, the one who ate my bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And you have all of the other passages right behind me from John 12 to 15 to 19, speaking about Jesus as the suffering Messiah. You should look them up because there's such an emphasis in John. Look at how many quotes there are. If there's so much suffering that the Messiah should have undergone, how in the world did the disciples miss it? They keep talking about the kingdom, right? Luke 24, the very end, the disciples in the road to Emmaus. Speaking with Jesus, not knowing that's Jesus. They say, it's been three days. He's dead. We thought he would be the one who would ultimately establish the kingdom. They're still thinking about the kingdom. Acts 1, 5 through 8. Is it now that you're going to establish the kingdom? Luke 1, Zacharias prays, the Savior has come to deliver us from our enemies. There was an expectation of a political, violent Messiah in the writings surrounding the New Testament that are not in our canon, but also in the Bible itself. And so the expectation was of this political figure. Now, on top of that, that world was filled with messianic pretenders. There's at least a half a dozen that are extremely famous. Some are mentioned in Acts 5. Others are mentioned in Acts 22. Paul was confused for by one of those pretenders called the Egyptian prophet. In other words, that society was filled with people who came and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. 
And Jesus said, that is going to happen again in the future. Remember the prophecies? So you can understand why some of the disciples, even the most faithful ones, missed it. On top of that, Jesus had a zealot in his crew. He had one purpose for existence, to kill the Romans. So Simon the zealot wasn't a nice guy. And so, of course, you would be, it's explainable why some of the people that were most loyal to Jesus missed the fact that he was the suffering Messiah. But at the same time, we have to understand, they missed it. Because all those Old Testament passages speak about the suffering Messiah. Well, the Messiah doesn't stay suffering. He comes back as king, and that's our last category. He is the king of Israel. The king who's introduced with that title from the very beginning in John chapter 1, Nathaniel again is the one who says, he is the son of God, you are the king of Israel. That comes from Zephaniah 3.15. In chapter 3, he talks to, Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the kingdom. In chapter 6, the people want to by force appoint Jesus as king. In chapter 12, he rides into Jerusalem as part of the triumphal entry, the beginning of the Passion Week, on a donkey, and the people are hailing him as the king of Israel, again going back to Zechariah, Zephaniah 3.15, but also to Zechariah 9.9 and Psalm 118, verse 25. Behold, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of Yahweh. And then in the final few hours of his life in chapters 18 through 19, Jesus is interrogated as a pretender, as a threat to Rome. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks him. And Jesus says, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world, which is part of the reason why the the disciples missed it. They were expecting a kingdom here. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my soldiers would fight for me. That's what he says to Pilate. In other words, there is an explanation. There is such a fixation with establishing the kingdom here and now. Don't we have the same fixation at times? We want this place to be like Eden. And if this place was just like Eden, would we want heaven? Probably not. That's what they wanted. Establish the kingdom now. We have Isaiah all over the place. 24, 25, 61, 60, 64, 65. Lots of messianic kingdom talk. That's what they wanted because they couldn't wait for eternity. Just like we struggle sometimes. But that's the final Johannine presentation of Jesus from the Old Testament as the one who is the king. The Messiah comes out of the grave and reigns. As we conclude, the chart in front of you is intended to show you how John followed Genesis in his writing of his book. The highlights should hopefully make it easier for you to see. It goes back to the beginning of the story, all the way before anything existed. Jesus was there. And the wisdom of God was operating to create the world, to create light from darkness. Now we have spiritual light and darkness separated. And then the story ends in Genesis 2. 1 through 4, the heavens were created and they were finished. God finished his work that he had done. This is the book of the beginning of the heavens and the earth, when God made the earth and heaven. And you can see the overlap. When God finished everything, we know in 131, he says, it is very good. 
Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. And this is the book. So this is how we should look at John. That this is John's book. The creation story of spiritual creation. And it all begins for John with the Old Testament. The one who created light has now come as light into the world. And he expresses that at the, at the festival of the Hanukkah in chapter 10. As the great menorah is lit in Jerusalem, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. He's the lamb who ends all Passover sacrifices. He's the Sabbath who gives us full and final rest. He's the true manna from heaven who satisfies our hunger. He's the water of life who satisfies our thirst. He's the shepherd king who dies and reigns on a Davidic throne as the son of God, as the son of man until we enter eternal life. And he is the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. So what John wants you to do is as you study the sayings, of Jesus and his signs open up your Old Testament right next to the Gospel of John if you really want to understand it. Lord God, we thank you for your word. As Hebrews 4 says, it is powerful. It's a two-edged sword. It judges us. And I pray that for all of us, your word would not just be admired, but applied that we would not try to establish little kingdoms here, that we anticipate King Jesus who will reign forever and ever as prophesied in Scripture. Until then, help us to faithfully follow him wherever he may lead. Amen.